From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with U.S. Representative Donna Edwards on the trajectory of progressive politics in America. After that, author, activist, and founder of Sojourner Magazine, the Reverend Jim Wallace joins us to discuss his latest book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America, coming up on The Public Morality. This year's presidential campaign has been like no other in recent memory. Reactionary politics, demagoguery, and hatred of certain groups dominate the news coverage. But is this the moment when the country moves in a direction more in line with progressive thinking? To discuss this is U.S. Representative from Maryland, Donna Edwards. Edwards has served four terms in the House of Representatives where she is a leading progressive voice. This year, she is running for the United States Senate in Maryland to replace the retiring Barbara Mikulski. Representative Edwards, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks. It's good to be with you. We're going to begin. I'm going to sort of set the time clock beginning with the Reagan administration. And the nation, in my view, has been dominated, at least rhetorically, by a right-wing ethos that should not be conflated with conservatism. Uh, but, but I think the data is clear that that ethos has been unproductive for America. So my question to you, are we now at a precipice that might move the country leftward toward a more liberal progressive agenda? I think that we are at a really important um, moment in time, and I think uh, we can certainly see that debate playing out um, in the Democratic Party primary, but I think that we can also see that some really progressive ideas around uh, trade and the way that trade should work to benefit American workers, around um, how it is that the economy should function for people who are in the middle class and working their way uh, into the middle class, just kind of clawing to get in the middle class. And I think those debates are really progressive debates that are playing out in both political parties right now. Now, I'm, I'm guilty, and I know many of us are uh, using the term liberal progressive. Is that, an, is that accurate or should we delineate the two or, or can they be conflated? I think that, you know, the thing is, especially in today's parlance, I think that people use them interchangeably. I think the distinction um, is that we are talking about, you know, a a political dynamic in which people believe that government should uh, help them and not hurt them, that should um, uh, assist in uh, big ways and small ways to help lift people out of of poverty, uh, create jobs for the middle class. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether you're calling those liberal or progressive. The fact is uh, that we need to have um, both uh, systems, public policy, elected officials uh, that work for people and work to help make their lives better. Now, you, you, you touched on a couple a couple specifics uh, that could be part of that liberal progressive agenda. I want to I want to touch on a couple. One, what measures need to be put in place to change the current trajectory of a widening income inequality? Well, I think at a bottom line, we have to start um, using federal resources more effectively to target 
uh, aspects of those monies, whether it's housing, economic development, transportation, uh, directly into neighborhoods and communities that are the most vulnerable. We have the ability to do that by looking at census tracts. We know uh, by neighborhood, almost by street, uh, what places are doing well and the places that aren't. And we should start targeting federal resources in that way. I think we've also got to look at the ways in which certain public policies negatively impact particularly communities of color. For example, the 30-year span that you talk about is also a 30-year span in which we which we had a whole bunch of tough-on-crime policies that have resulted in um, high rates of incarceration and uh, the use, for example, of things like truth and sentencing laws or mandatory minimums. And I think that we're at a point now where we fully recognize that that was really bad policy. It was failed policy. And instead, we need to make investments in education, both behind the fence line and outside of it, wraparound services in community that really support and build uh, communities, education and training uh, for jobs that are actually existing in the economy instead of uh, jobs that don't exist. So I think that this is a really great moment for us to rethink uh, a lot of those policies that have dug the middle class and people working their way into the middle class into a deep, dark hole, and we need to start climbing out. Now, it's fascinating uh, for me as an observer that I hear candidates on on both sides uh, railing against trade agreements. I mean, that's certainly uh, Donald Trump on one side and, and the presidential camp, uh, election. And you can, you can hear more, um, uh, probably loudest is uh, Senator Sanders on the left. And I believe I believe you're on record to being opposed to Trans, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Is that correct? Well, not only am I opposed to it, and especially the more I've seen of it, but uh, for about the better part of the last two years, I've actually been trying to work with people uh, to improve it, to make it work, because I believe in trade. We're in a global economy, but the rules have to be in place that protect American jobs, uh, that restore manufacturing jobs in our, our country. You know, folks are angry about these trade agreements with good reason. Uh, we have seen a hemorrhaging of manufacturing jobs every time we enter into another trade agreement. And uh, so I'm not going to be the, the Democrat that, um, you know, caves to the global interest and goes down the track of supporting another trade agreement that's going to trade away the jobs of hardworking Marylanders and certainly the jobs of hardworking Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then at the same time, so isn't sort of the rub there, uh, a lot of the countries where we have trade deficits also are devaluing their currency. So isn't there sort of rub there that that unless we we don't want to pay six dollars for strawberries. So how do you how do you meet that that consumer reality versus the economic reality you just spoke of? Well, I mean, the fact is also that we want to make sure that we're entering into a, a, a trade agreement with people who don't manipulate their currency so that there's some standard set. And it's unfortunate that in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, there's not a currency chapter, uh, even though we would be entering into an agreement with countries like uh, Japan that have been notorious uh, for manipulating their currency. That really disadvantages American consumers. It disadvantages American workers and American business. And so, um, I, you know, I I think that if we're going to have rules of the road, those rules ought to apply universally, uh, whether it's on currency or in the environment or protection of workers uh, or protection of uh, U.S. procurement uh, to make sure that there's fair dealing, square dealing uh, for American workers and and business. And unless we satisfy those rules of the road, we'll continue to hemorrhage jobs in this country and not create the manufacturing jobs that American workers deserve. 
You know, um, I just want to switch gears for, for the few minutes we have left. Um, now, one of the things was that I just had a, I just did a show uh, last week, I believe it was, uh, on uh, paid family leave. And it's an issue that an overwhelming number of Americans support the concept, but, but with the with exception of several states, it's virtually a non-starter. Why, why is that? Well, I think it's because the um, interest, particularly the interest of big business, has gotten in the way of good policy. Uh, it makes no sense that in the greatest nation on earth, um, people should not uh, have to worry about it, whether a child gets sick or a family member or they get sick, that they can take a day off um, without the fear of losing their jobs. And so um, the American public, I mean, we're really smart people. We understand that we need things like paid leave and equal pay and access to quality child care, safety, uh, safe uh, and sensible gun regulations. And yet uh, the politicians um, sit by the, by, by the sideline. And I think it's because they're too driven by special interests. They're tr- too driven by a system of money and politics that discourages us from focusing on the real issues that are important to the American people. And the minute that we get the money out of politics, Politics, and we get people paying attention to the interest of everyday uh, folks who go to work and just want to take care of themselves and their families, the better off we'll be. And then we'll have policies that don't favor Wall Street and big bankers and special interests, but favor working people, people who get up every day and just want to go to a job that pays them a decent wage so that they can meet their responsibilities and so that their children can live a better life than they do. That's what every American family wants. And it's ridiculous that 1% of the population, multinational corporations, corporations and special interest lobby stand in the way of that. Beyond a um, sort of list of items, agenda items, how does the liberal progressive agenda uh, have that intrinsic aspect so that it can have lasting value like like that um, uh, right-wing coalition did for, for more than 30 years? Well, I, I actually believe that the progressive agenda on uh, wages and e- equality and on on trade and on uh, the way that the criminal justice system ought to function is actually the winning argument. And it's the argument that has been won by the American people. The politicians just need to catch up. Uh, and so I would say, you know, we have had a, a, a winning argument over this period of time with a whole, a whole bunch of failed policies, frankly, uh, that have taught us better. And um, it's time now for for elected officials, uh, for people who could make a difference in public policy to change their tune. Representative Edwards, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule, and the best of luck to you in the next couple weeks. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was U.S. Representative Don Edwards. Coming up, my discussion with author and activist Jim Wallace. One of the most charged words in the American lexicon, racism, can at times be used in the same cavalier manner we use and, but, and or. Because of the role racism has played in the pursuit of the elusive, more perfect union, we collectively suffer from an arrested development when it comes to addressing it in its myriad forms. But my guest today has some idea how we might address it. He is the Reverend Jim Wallace, and his latest book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. Wallace is an author of numerous books, an activist, and he's also the founder of Sojourner Magazine. 
Jim Wallace, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be back. Well, let's dive right in. One of the aspects that I found really interesting about the book, and, uh, and beyond the importance of the difficult, unresolved issues of race that we're going to discuss even further, but in a macro context, I found you almost leapfrogging over politics in order to have a, put the conversation in the realm of theology as to say, this is where the conversation must begin if we're going to be serious about it so that others, including elected officials, can follow. How do you see that? Well, we've had, you know, 250 years of, of slavery, 100 years of legal segregation, discrimination, and even terrorist violence against black lives and bodies, and 50 years of a civil rights movement and seven years of a black president. And politics hasn't cleansed us of all this. So it's time to go deeper, and it always has been time to go deeper. And I think so language of sin and repentance and evil and, and our faith has to be involved. It's got to get very personal as well. Uh, this isn't just, yeah, it's just systemic. I talk in the book about our policing systems and a racialized criminal justice system. All that's true and critical. And change relationships have to change public spaces and places. But it has to, I think, become an issue of faith for us, an issue of morality, and an issue of the integrity of our relationships. Well, in one sense, this, 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 your effort's almost like a. Uh... Uh, another data point, because I don't recall, maybe you can, uh, historically, when that moral needle uh, was moved, it be, starting from either Capitol Hill or Washington, D.C., it usually starts um, at, a, at a much lower level and then works its way up. Well, change never starts in Washington. It's always from the outside. So movements on the outside, movements normally based on moral convictions and sensibilities, are what change things on the inside. Like, I, I often have people who come to town to advocate and lobby. They sometimes ask me to speak to them before they go up to the Hill. So I, uh, I often say, well, here's how you recognize a member of Congress. They're the ones who are walking around, often with suits and ties, with their fingers held up in the air. And then they lick their fingers, <laughs> and they walk around to see which way the wind is blowing. And I say, you can't replace, you can't change a country by replacing one wet finger politician with, with another. You have to finally change the wind. So we have to be more than, than lobbyists. We have to be wind changers. How do we change the wind on the critical issues of our time? And so those movements on the outside are important to changing things on the inside. And uh, w- one more thing before we, before we get into the book, but uh, one more thing that I wanted to touch on with you, uh, as a body politic, did we naively assume, I mean collectively, that the election of President Obama meant that we have got this whole race thing figured out, that, we, that that indeed made us post-racial, if you will? Well, uh, certainly the election of Barack Obama showed how the nation is changing. Uh, not only African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, Native American votes, but also young white votes made that possible. But then what was revealed was how much resistance there is, how much opposition, pushback there is to those changes. And Barack Obama became, for many, the symbol, the, the um, target of uh, he represented that new America we're, we're becoming. And that's why the hatred was so strong. It wasn't just opposition, disagreements in policy, which are fine. It was personal hate, hatred. And, and, and I, I, I think that just shows how difficult it's going to be to push back what I call America's original sin. This whole notion that our, our sins of racism at the start of the country that remain and linger in our social systems. And I think this, I think the most important political reality of our time, the pivotal event, if you will, will be by mid-century when we are no longer a white majority nation. 
will be a majority of minorities. And that uh, emerging American diversity is either seen as a gift or is perceived as a threat. And those who perceive it as a threat are now deliberately uh, provoking racial fear and even hatred and even condoning violence as a way to prevent that future from becoming real. And so that's the battle we're in now. And uh, I think that's going to be not just a political uh, conflict, but really a time for faith to stand up and, uh, and, and to stand up and show some courage. Here with writer, activist, and founder of Sojourner Magazine, the Reverend Jim Wallace. Um, I'm going to move into the book, but I thought we'd have a little fun with it. Um, I I thought we're going to use your book to craft an on-air sermon. And so we're going to conduct an exegesis based on the title. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Okay, we're going to start with you you unpacking uh, America's original sin. You unpack that. Well, a lot of a lot of us white folks like to think the original sin was slavery, uh, and then we, we can say, "Well, my grandparents didn't have slaves, and my people came later." Blah blah blah. <laughs> and and the original sin really is a lot deeper than that because there were other slaveries before ours. Greeks were slaves to the Romans because they lost a war. But you had Greek slaves tutoring the elite children of the Romans. They weren't dehumanized. Their families weren't ripped apart. But we decided that we couldn't do to um, indigenous people to take their lands and lives and do to kidnapped Africans what we intended by making them in the child property and creating the biggest economic resource of our nation's founding. We couldn't do that to people who were made in the image of God. So we had to throw that away throw away Imago Dei, the image of God, and say they weren't really fully human. And this isn't just old history. When a black teenage boy in in, uh, Ferguson told me in this last year, he still feels treated like uh, three-fifths of a human being uh, today in 2016. So this is very contemporary. And when we said at the founding of our nation that indigenous lives and black lives don't matter, which is what we said, and white lives matter more. Uh, that was the founding principle. So until we challenge that at a root level, uh, we're not going to get to the repentance, which means not just saying sorry, but turning, turning around and going in a whole new direction, which is, I think, the future of building a bridge to a new America. All right. The next one is racism. How are you defining that? Because that, 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 that one's loaded. We, we tend to hear different things. We mean different things. So how are you defining racism? Well, as I was just saying, uh, ra- racism is, you know, in, in the opening of Genesis there is, is we're going to create them in the image of God. All of us are created in the image of God, in all of our diversity. And then Revelation at the end, at the end of time, we worship God, it says in Revelation 7, in all of our languages, our diversities, our tribes. There is no post-racial society ever. We are created in our wonderful diversity, and, and, and racism is denying that. It's saying we're not all made in the image of God. The idea of racial difference and betterment is anti-Genesis. It's uh, it's against God's dream and purpose and the end of history. It's really, it's uh, in the Genesis text, it's saying rather than having all of us dominion, meaning stewardship over the earth, one people will have dominion over another people. And that's contrary to God's purposes. And that's at the heart of the gospel. In, in Galatians, it talks about no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And those Galatians factors of race and class and gender were deliberately overcome in the early church. And they were used, actually, in, baptiz- 
in baptisms as a part of the liturgy to say to all the new converts, we are overcoming these barriers in this community. And if you don't want to be part of taking them down, the barriers and the walls and building bridges, if you don't want to do that, go somewhere else, because that's what we do here. So tearing down those barriers is essential to who we are as the people of God. Um, talk uh, talk a minute, if you will, about, um, what, let me just ask you the question, what are the parables of uh, Baltimore and Ferguson? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the book goes into how Ferguson's a parable, Baltimore, now Chicago is a parable, Flint is a parable, I think now where we see the air we breathe and the water we drink is like what, what racism is, not just individual acts, it's toxic, it's in the air and the water, if you will. Uh, Ferguson, you saw how a completely white police department mostly was terrorizing and racializing, uh, it's like making money off its black population through a corrupt legal and policing system. Baltimore, you saw how there was a police department much more diverse, but you've got the marginalization of all these young people. No more jobs. So when a kid in Ferguson tells me, he said, I'm a, I'm a protester. They always want to know what else protesters want. He said, I, I, I want an education. I want a job. And I want a family. That's what my son, Luke, wants, who's going to college next year. But in, in, in Baltimore, you had whole neighborhoods marginalized from education and jobs and therefore families. And so you can't do that and see the breakdown that occurs and then send in the police to keep uh, to, to, to maintain order. It just does, it doesn't work. So we've got to look at every city. In Chicago, you know, we saw this video of this, this uh, I'll call him a cop. He didn't feel like a police officer. He shot this young boy 16 times in 15 minutes. And they didn't all do that, all the police in the video, but they all saw it and they covered it up. And the city covered it up. So that's a parable of how covering up evil and not holding anyone accountable uh, leads to the corroding of a, of a community. So every instance here, there are parables that we have to learn from. White privilege. What is it? Well, you know, uh, that came up. That came up at most of these town hall meetings we're having around <laughs> the country every time. And well, you know, uh, I was going to ask you that, Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, the, the the best answer came from a young African American kid. At one of these meetings, somebody asked that, a white person asked that. He said, well, if you can't see it, you got it. So I thought that made made sense. Uh, I was asked that yesterday at another interview. I was sitting in my home office, and uh, yesterday when the question came, my son was walking in with uh, one of his friends, another teammate from the high school baseball team. And my son says his best friends are the, uh, his teammates pretty typical for a high school athlete and uh and this other friend was african-american and they were hanging out here for a while and out to practice when they walk out the door my son luke um is safer than his friend cam no matter where they go anywhere in the city uh little league baseball coach i've done that for years and every black player i ever coached every black player whether they're low-income family or the son of top lawyers in dc they all have the talk with their mom or dad about how to behave in the presence of a police officer with a gun. None of my white, white players have ever had that talk. And most of their parents only know what's going on. The talk, having to have the talk or not to is white privilege. And so uh, time and time again, uh, it's like we're on a, we white folks are on this, um, this stair stepper moving forward like at an airport. And we see a lot of things going on around us that we're against, but we're moving forward. Now you've got a number of white working class people who are being marginalized. 
They're losing jobs and homes and, 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 and their kids to wars that were unnecessary. And they're angry. And now you've got uh, candidates who are appealing to that anger and fear, wanting them to blame other people, blame immigrants, blame blacks, blame Muslims for their problems. And that kind of ugly populism has risen up before. Yeah, we've always had it. Huey Long. Was that Huey Long? That's right. That's right. And George Wallace. Yes. About the same things. Yes. Uh, On that, wouldn't you, um, does that also sort of touch on, you sort of touched on it contemporarily, but does that touch on the slogan, um, Donald Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again? That's code language, I think, for Make America White Again. Uh, and I think Trump is sort of the death knell of white supremacy. He's saying, uh, we can stop this. We can change this. We don't have to accept this new demographic that our country is threatening to become. We can we can pre- prevent that. So they try and prevent all kinds of ways. One is they, we've seen the gerrymandering of congressional districts, uh, the racial gerrymandering. We've seen uh, mass incarceration of, of uh, young men and women of color treating uh, when drug use is the same for black and white, but incarceration is disproportionately people of color and, and not white for drug, uh, the drug war. And then the disenfranchisement of those people when they get out of prison, that's a way to, to deny the vote. Voter suppression, voter IDs, denies the vote. Immigration reform that, that prevents a pathway to citizenship. These are all ways to try and deny and prevent that new demographic from changing America. And, and I think Donald Trump is offering now to be the white strongman, the white nationalist candidate, to prevent that from happening, but even changing the rule of law, which I think he, he would do. So um, I think, you know, these old sins won't die easily. But I think um, repentance is the proper response. And I see that happening around the country as people want to build a roadmap, if you will, to a new America. We're still staying with the topic of, um, of white privilege, talking with the Reverend Jim mm-hmm. Wallace. Uh, talk to me about the difference between overt and implicit bias. Well, um, we're all... We're all uh, horrified by uh, what happened in Charleston, nine African-Americans shot and killed in Mother Emanuel AME Church. Uh, but, but the implicit uh, racism of, of systems and educational systems and police departments and, and the, the, the unconscious bias, racism is overt and covert. It's structural in the system. It's also in attitudes and hearts. And it can be explicit, as Charleston was, or implicit. And so, um, for example, uh, I often tell these these uh, crowds of people at these town meetings that, that I, I was, as a white baby boomer, the beneficiary of the biggest affirmative action program in my nation's history when my father, who was a World War II naval veteran, came out of, of the war and got a GI Bill, free education, and then got an FHA loan for our first house. And when you have education in a house, you're middle class. So so my government made my white family middle class. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the black GIs uh, uh, didn't get the same things in the same ways. So right away, that's that's white privilege. And that's implicit built into the whole system. But uh, those that's in my lifetime. This isn't back in slave days. So I think we have to be honest. We have to stop being so oblivious and be willing to recognize uh, and, and and not not be so uh, 
you know, white fragility is, is, is a problem here. People are so nervous about, uh, I'm not a racist, I, am I? That's the most foolish question, because it's in the air that we breathe and the water that we drink, and Flint became a parable of that. Mm-hmm. So it's time to stand up, particularly if we're people of faith, and say, this is contrary, this racism is contrary to the gospel. It's a gospel issue, not a political issue, a partisan one. And we've got to stand up to it. So when there's a stoking of racial fear and hatred and even justification of violence now in our presidential election campaign, we've got to stand up to it, not just politically, but as people of faith. I'm going to go back to something you said, because I know we will have at least one listener that that heard you say, you didn't say this, by the way, but they heard you say blacks couldn't get GI bills. That's not what you said. But but you were meaning, you know, in terms of you could have that you could have the uh, you couldn't get the loan. You couldn't live in certain places. I mean, so you're talking about a whole list of things. I didn't want anyone to. A whole list of things that the Jim Crow in the South prevented uh, the same educational benefits and none of the new houses that my family got these new subdivisions were available uh, to, to to black GI. So it was a whole different system, and they just didn't get what my dad got. Right, and that and that means property values and and wealth and inheritance and things like that. So I just right. I know I just Jim, someone's gonna say Jim Wallace said black people couldn't get GI bills. So I just wanted to I just wanted to clear that out. Um, here, you know the other thing about um, I want to say I want to ask. A little bit more about white privilege because, you know, America's funny. I'll just, I'll just use myself and have you whack away at it. But as an African-American, we could say historically that it, that is a lack of privilege for me. But I'm male. I'm heterosexual. Uh, I'm uh, well-educated. I mean, these are all certain privileges. So if you eliminated white privilege from the face from America, we would America would still be a country, you know, sort of, you know, uh, raft in privilege. So is white privilege more predominant than the others? How, how do you adjudicate that? Well, I was at a conference this weekend in Seattle, and all kinds of people were there, very multiracial. Um, and a number of people made the point that there are a number of privileges here. And as you say, uh, there's male privilege for sure, educational uh, heterosexual, if you will, all of that. Even Christian in, in a society like ours can be a privilege instead of, uh, you know, uh, where, where it's persecution. Mm-hmm. Often when people stand up for, for, for their faith, if you're using Christianity as a privilege, it can be oppressive. So all that's true. I think the original sin, though, in this nation was, and, and I'm, I, am a, I am a Christian, but I want to say it was Christians who said, who basically were behind creating, I think, the most venal slavery that we've seen in history, which was, which, which was saying that you can't do to these slaves what we're about to do to make them into nothing but property and strip away their families and their lives and their dignity, uh, and, and still believe they're made of the image of God. So you're throwing away the image of God here. You're throwing away Imago Dei. We did that as a foundational principle. We said black lives Indigenous lives don't matter. That's what we set the foundation of our nation. So that sin lingers and stays. And until we repent of that sin and not just feel sorry for it, but repent of it, uh, we're not going to get the changes that we want. And so uh, I think this, for me, is an issue of of faith. And and I would even go further and say, as a as a white Christian, I want to say that this whole notion of um, of uh, of whiteness. Uh, which we created, really, as a social construct. We were Italians, Swedes, Germans, 
Irish until we can America and we all became white people. And so that notion of racial difference and betterment is not just an ideology, it's an idol. Mm -hmm. It's a lie and an idol, and idols separate us from God. So let me be blunt. Uh, White supremacy is an idol that separates white Christians from God. And until we repent of that sin, we got to get our souls back here. Uh, Racism isn't something that other people have a problem with, and we good white liberal people are going to help them with their problem. That's still how a lot of whites look at this. This is something that is uh, part of our own racial identity and, and, uh, and our sense of history, which is just false. And so to be freed of the idol and the ideology is to move forward together toward a very different American future, which I think is a great gift. What what role uh, when you and when you were doing the work you're doing as, um, as, as, uh, for this book, where does poverty play in in, in your analysis? Well, um, when you when you um, I mean on, on on every level, whether it be income disparity, whether it be especially wealth disparity between black and white families, uh, in, in terms of economics, education, when you marginalize people from from jobs and and uh, education and housing and all the rest you're going to create poverty <laughs> and so so poverty is is uh, is is uh, is really a, a cost of racism in this country but even when even I was talking to a group yesterday I was at this conference on aging here in Washington and I was saying that um, uh, what I learned on this book tour trail uh, some research being done in Colorado, other places, how even where there's educational and economic equality, when you take black families, black mothers who who uh, who are educated and have better jobs, they still have higher infant mortality rates than white mothers, and they still have have um, you know blacks don't live as long as whites even when you adjust for economics and education. And so this research being done is showing that that um, there's a hor- hor- hormone called cortisol that is the fight and flight hormone. It's what releases in our bodies when we're in difficulty and stress and danger. And they've got these measures now, I learned in Colorado, PBS is doing a series on this out there, that they can, they can take, examine that in a woman's hair, and they find higher much higher levels of cortisol, the stress in black women than white women. So stress, chronic stress and fear for your kids, for their safety, all of that uh, has impact on life expectancy and infant mortality. So it isn't just class, it isn't just poverty. It's, it's race and class and gender. It's always all three. And the Galatians text, Galatians 3, says that. In Christ, there's no uh, Gentile, Jew, male, female, slave, or free. That's race, class, and gender. They're all at stake. And so until we deal with all three of those, and in this country, you can't just... Poverty is, in fact, one of the consequences of our racism. But it's not just poverty. It's race in and of itself leads to lower uh, life expectancy and higher infant mortality, even when poverty is accounted for. And that talks about the chronic stress and vulnerability of people of color. And my son and his teammate walking out the door to practice yes, yesterday, one is safer than the other. And they both know that. 
But the good, good thing, it makes both of them angry now. My white son, too. Uh, now, I'm sure, uh, Jim, that there there are some uh, white brothers and sisters who are listening to the broadcast, and they say, Jim Wallace, I'm white, I'm low income, where's my white privilege? What do you say to him or her? Well, I say to him or her, first of all, that uh, that even if they've been economically marginalized, which many, many white working class people have been, they are, they are indeed. Their kids are safer with the police. That's just a fact. And you can deny that, but that's just not true. All the data shows that, that the racialized policing is a fact. Uh, all the stories from black churches, black Christians, black families, um, uh, everybody wouldn't have a story. It was just a few bad apples here and there. We've got a racialized policing system and culture and criminal justice system. And all the data shows that we can de- deny it, but the facts are all right there. And it's in the testimonies of every black family in this country and every black church. So we can walk away or we can listen to what the truth says. Now, economically, there's a lot of marginalization going on. The same forces that are making it harder hard to, to be middle class, we're losing our middle class. All that's true. But you've got Donald Trump, I'll name his name, Donald Trump, who's wanting marginalized white people to blame black people and blame immigrants and blame Muslims for their problems. Blaming the other Hating the other is the ugliest kind of populism in this country. You've seen it before, and now we're seeing it again in Donald Trump. So that's a lie. It's not the fault of immigrants or blacks or Muslims. It's the fault of economic systems that are marginalizing lots of people. And the people at the top are getting all the wealth. Uh, About that, Bernie Sanders is exactly right. All the wealth is going into those top and the, the, the bottom is, is slipping away and, and the middle is, is in danger. So there is marginalization. But to be manipulated uh, out of fear to blame other people for your marginalization is simply to, to, to be used by people like Donald Trump. And I'll name his name. Well, you know, I mean, um, I've not known you uh, to hold your tongue. So why, why, no, why start on this broadcast? So you, you, you pretty much have made uh, a career saying exactly what you think, and we certainly appreciate it. Finally, let's uh, end on that. You know, the, the good preacher always has to end on hope. So, so um, Reverend Wallace, let's let's go to a bridge to a new America. Where's the hope? You know, uh, the whole national discord discourse about race and and uh, religion has been pretty ugly these last several months. Pretty discouraging and depressing. However, I've been in 15 cities, and we've had these amazing town meetings. Very large, very multiracial, multicultural, and intergenerational. A lot of young people coming, and interfaith and secular. And I have seen people wanting to embrace this new America, wanting young people, wanting to make a difference in their lives, wanting a country that is not a majority white country, but where we, in fact, treat each other with dignity and respect. And we walk out the door, people committing themselves. To, to directly address these issues, a criminal justice system, health care, education, economics. And so I am walking out the door of these meetings. I got one tonight in Washington. And I know I'll walk out the door from a packed room with people who believe in a different kind of future and want to commit themselves to it. So underneath the national discussion, which is depressing and rather um, hopeless, I feel a lot of hope at the local level, the grassroots level, people who want to make a difference in their lives, their families, their churches, and their communities. So I'm hopeful. Now, I'm going to take that same uh, white couple that that challenged you on um, 
privileged and then come back and say, I hear what you're saying, uh, uh, Jim Wallace, and, and I know in your book you, you, you talk about how we have different stories and, and certain people don't know other people's stories. So I'm that white, you know, that white guy again. How can I bridge that gap by hearing the stories of others and they can hear mine? How, how do I do that? Well, I think, first of all, people, uh, people can learn if they want to, and they can read and they can listen, and they shouldn't uh, feel like it's the obligation of their black brothers and sisters to just educate them entirely. They can educate themselves by just looking and listening and reading. But I think I, I want the white parents of my players to care that the black parents they sometimes call their friends have to have that talk with their son's teammates. And I want them to be able to ask, what's, what's it feel like to have to tell your son that he can't trust law enforcement in his own community? What does that feel like? That's the kind of conversation we have to have. I want white church people to ask black church brothers and sisters uh, what it feels like after the shooting of another young African man in their communities. We got to listen to each other's stories and let those stories change us. And something is wrong when 75% of white Americans have no significant black relationships in their lives. Something is wrong with that. So how do we change our racial geography in our churches, our schools, and our sports teams? And I talk about all three in the book of how we can change that. And then together, how can we say, we're going to have a... I, I finally think most sincere Christians would like a society where privilege and punishment are not the consequences of our skin color. And if we believe in that kind of world, we have to give our lives for it. Um, last question. What, if anything, did you learn about Jim Wallace writing this book? Well, um, you know, I got kicked out of my little white church when I was 15, a long time ago, and uh, I've been blessed to be, you know, picked up and taken in by black churches and got a lot of my deepest friends and colleagues and co-workers who are African-American. And so on the tour, I'm out with a lot of those friends. We're having great conversations. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I fly back home and I get in the cab and I come home. It doesn't matter where I live. And on any given night, any given moment, uh, I'm still a white man and I can walk away. I can walk away from that danger and that jeopardy and my kids aren't unsafe when they walk out the door. And that's not true for any of my black friends and colleagues who can't walk away. So at one of our meetings, this white kid said, well, I'm not going to a multiracial church and I'm learning about racism. I'm recovering racist and it's terrible. It's in our DNA. But I'm not very hopeful about the future, he said. And this older black woman raised her hand and I said, are you going to respond to him? And uh, she said, yeah, I am. I said, good. So she said, son, that's your white privilege. Your cynicism. You can just, you can be cynical and walk away. She said, I can't walk away. I can never walk away. So you can't walk away either. So it means uh, even if, even if this issue has been central to, to my whole life, which it has been, I, I still have to deal with the fact that as a white guy with white, white kids, I can walk away, and we're uh, we're part of this whole safe family thing where we take kids who need some care for a while if their moms can't deal with their medical issues or whatever. So we take these two little girls often into our home for periods of time when they're five and two, and they're young African American kids. And uh, 
you know, um, when when I'm watching the news in my study and I'm hearing the census reports about how many black kids, one out of three black kids, are under the below the poverty line, and Sierra's playing in my study in the rug, and she takes that moment to come up and sit in my lap, and I hear the census report, and I look at Sierra. That's who they're talking about, and Sierra is below the poverty line, and so it's got to get personal. <laughs> got to be personal for all, all, all of us and and we have to understand no matter where i go i gotta i gotta always say and i'll just say it finally here no matter what i believe no matter where i go no matter where i've lived no matter who my friends are no matter how much i commit to try and deal with this i can never in this country escape white privilege i never can and never will so i have to what what that means is those who have privilege have to risk it whether it's white or education or or um, male, group, we have to risk our privilege for the sake of the things we believe are true. And we certainly have to risk our privilege for, for the sake of our faith. The title of the book is America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. The author has been my guest, the Reverend Jim Wallace. And I want to thank you once again, sir, for being on The Public Morality this afternoon. Thank you, brother. Take care now. Take care. That was the Reverend Jim Wallace. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, we speak with author Ron Stodgill about his latest book, Where Everybody Looks Like Me, a critical account of the future of historical black colleges and universities. Next time on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. Just before President-elect Barack Obama took the oath of office in 2009, I opined that his election could mark a new beginning for relations between the United States and Cuba. As it turned out, I was about seven years earlier in my supposition, but it came to fruition nevertheless. One of the last Cold War garments, U.S. policy on Cuba had long been a tattered sweater that oozed with the stench of mothballs. For more than 50 years, through 11 presidents, three economic embargoes, a failed invasion, Bosch assassination attempts, along with a missile crisis that brought the world to the brink of nuclear war, we have inhaled the toxins of an ineffectual policy. Cuba was a lightning rod that garnered a portion of U.S. attention that was not commiserate, especially with the demise of the Soviet Union with reality. But many saw and continue to see longtime Cuban dictator Fidel Castro as the hemisphere's worst menace. Without offering the contrarian narrative to portray Castro as a saint, could anyone, based on historical facts, state that he was more of a menace in the hemisphere than, say, Pinochet in Chile, Somoza in Nicaragua, or the Duvaliers, Papa and Baby Doc in Haiti? That small sample size, based on their atrocities, places Castro no greater than fifth as the hemisphere's worst menace, lagging behind those who also had the distinction of being U.S. allies. It's quite possible, had President Kennedy lived, relations with Cuba might look very different today. As I wrote back in that 2008 article, the classified government documents indicate Castro and Kennedy shared a mutual interest in improving relations between Cuba and the United States. There was a constant stream of memos throughout the summer of 1963 and into the fall emanating from White House representatives, clearly indicating the administration was moving to changing its relationship with Cuba. 
On November 17, 1963, five days before his assassination, President Kennedy met with French journalist Jean Daniel, who he asked to relay to Castro that he was ready to negotiate normal relations and drop the embargo. Unfortunately, November 22, 1963 changed everything. But 53 years later, President Barack Obama has hit the restart button. The president's recent trip to Cuba is an opportunity to no longer be hamstrung by arguments originated by Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, and Harry Truman. It does not suggest that we go out and purchase bumper stickers that read, Fidel Castro was misunderstood, but it does reflect a new beginning. Even the staunchest critics of the president changing relations with Cuba must admit his televised speech live on the island with Raul Castro in attendance was a great moment for human rights. The president stated, citizens should be free to speak their mind without fear, to organize and to criticize their government and to protest peacefully, and that the rule of law should not include arbitrary detentions of people who exercise those rights. I believe that every person should have the freedom to practice their faith peacefully and publicly, and yes, I believe voters should be able to choose their governments in free and democratic elections. Those who do oppose the president's actions have legitimate concerns. Does the president's trip legitimize the Castro government? Moreover, it was nonsensical for Raul Castro to tell a news person there are no political prisoners in Cuba. But these arguments represent what is, not what can be. Change rarely occurs in our timeline, but it does occur. The president has moved us from the unproductive known into the unpredictable unknown. Is it perfect? No. But we shouldn't make perfection the enemy of the good. We've tried that for nearly six decades. It doesn't work. But the president's actions show us once again, this is how we get to that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcasts, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.